So here you're meeting a novel virus with novel vaccines, right? Why can't we assume that there's going to be much to be learned over the next year or two? And how about a little humility? Hi, I'm Joanne Sulberner, a features editor at the BMJ. I've been covering health and medicine for nearly four decades. You're listening to one of four podcasts we are producing about COVID-19 in the U.S. Today, we're talking about vaccines. This is a special topic for President Trump, who introduced a program called Operation Warp Speed back in May. Its objective is to finish developing and then to manufacture and distribute a proven coronavirus vaccine as fast as possible. Again, we'd love to see if we could do it prior to the end of the year. We think we're going to have some very good results coming out very quickly. The Great National Project will bring together the best of American industry and innovation, the full resources of the United States government, and the excellence and precision of the United States military. We have the military totally involved. So what about an American COVID-19 vaccine? There are so many things to talk about here. And we've got three people who know a lot about vaccine activity in the U.S. and in the world. In alphabetical order, First is Nicole Lurie. She's a senior lecturer at Harvard Medical School and a strategic advisor to the foundation working on global vaccines, CEPI, where she's been leading the COVID response team since early January. And Nikki was assistant secretary for preparedness and response in the Department of Health and Human Services during the Obama administration. Hi, Nikki. Hi there, Joanne. Paul Offit is a pediatrician who specializes in infectious diseases, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, a vaccine expert and co-inventor of a rotavirus vaccine. He's written several books on immunization, including Deadly Choices about the movement to discourage vaccine use. Hello, Paul. Hi, how are you? And Prashant Yadav is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, a nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. and London, and a lecturer at Harvard Medical School. He's also worked at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in his area of expertise, supply chains, something that will be key to producing and distributing a COVID-19 vaccine. Hello, Prashant. Again, a lot of things to talk about. And a warning to listeners, you may hear some thunder. I am recording this from Boston, where it appears to be monsoon season. Now let's start at the beginning. The prospects for a successful vaccine developed with US involvement, and then we'll move on to the production, distribution, likely acceptance for a vaccine, and how the US vaccine effort looks from a global point of view. So Operation Warp Speed has selected a handful of vaccines to focus on, and there are dozens in development as well. The president wants something to be ready by the end of the year, and the most trusted coronavirus expert in America, Anthony Fauci, has said he thinks it could happen. Let's go around, panelists. From your point of view, could there be a vaccine ready for use in the U.S. by the end of the year? Is that possible, impossible, or is it too early to say. I, I guess I'll start. Uh, Bate is Paul Offit. So, so there are five finally uh, that are being developed by Warp Speed. Um, one of them is Merck's vaccine, which is a, um, a so-called vesicular stomatitis virus into which one has then engineered the gene that codes for the spike protein. And that the good news about all this is we know what we want. We want antibodies against the, the receptor binding domain of the spike region, which will then prevent the virus from binding the cells, which will then prevent us from getting sick. So that's good. And then there's there's uh, two vaccines by Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, which are these replication defective 
um, adenovirus, either simian or human. So the virus can't reproduce itself, but again, it can express the, uh, that spike protein that you're interested in. And then Pfizer and Moderna have mRNA vaccines, um, which again, just have the gene that, that when injected into muscle cells will then make the spike protein and then your body makes antibodies to that spike protein. What all of those have in common is they are not, none of those uh, have a commercially available vaccine counterpart in the United States. So it's a, these are novel vaccine strategies that are about to meet a novel virus. I mean, this is bat coronavirus that just made its debut in the human population. So I, I think there's much to learn here. So, so rushing things always is a little scary. I do think the, the NIH active group has recommended that these vaccines, all of them, be tested in a phase three trial, a prospective placebo-controlled trial of about 30,000 people, whether it's 15,000 uh, 15, 15, vaccine, 15,000 placebo, or 20,000 vaccine, 10,000 placebo. It would be surprising to me, since these are, aren't starting till July, that we could actually recruit that many people and have enough disease in the placebo group to say with confidence that we have a vaccine that at least doesn't have an uncommon side effect and at least is effective to a certain extent. That would surprise me. I would go for sort of the beginning of next year, but I'll be curious to hear what the other panelists think. Well, I'm happy to, to jump in next. It's Nikki Lurie. And I guess what I would say is it all depends on what you think you mean by having a vaccine available. One of the features of the work that's going on both in the US and around the world is that we've been asking companies to manufacture doses of vaccine even before we know of the vaccine work. So manufacture it, we call at risk. So yes, there will be doses of vaccine that are manufactured. There have to be for the clinical trials and the companies will keep manufacturing more. They will be put in vials and syringes. And the question I think is at what point in the development do you think anyone is planning to make them available to either selective or general populations? So a lot has been written now and talked about in terms of an October surprise, a premature uh, authorization or a premature licensure of that vaccine. I think almost all of us feel very strongly that the vaccine has to be shown to be quite safe and um, likely effective before we would feel comfortable with that kind of release. And, but the reality is there probably will be a couple hundred, I mean, a couple million doses as a byproduct of development. And it may well be that Trump decides to declare victory, or it may well be that the scientific community prevails and gets folks to hold off until we have more confidence in the vaccine, or at least a correlate of protection. But time will tell. We don't know that yet. The other thing that's worth saying, and I don't think that um, Paul said this completely, is not only are these platforms pretty novel and, and making vaccines on these new platforms is something the world's been trying to do for a long time, but nobody's really scaled them up before. So going from production of a small amount for laboratory use or for early trials to millions and billions of doses is in and of itself a pretty challenging feat. And so even if we can make you know, relatively few doses or a few million doses, that's a far cry from making a few hundred million doses. And Prashant, that gets into your area, maybe not on the vaccine side, but certainly on all the things that go along with vaccines, the syringes, the bottles. Where, what can you say about the supply chain issues of having a vaccine ready to go and how soon? 
So similar to what Nicole said, I think um, it's hard to imagine we can have the manufacturing capacity, both for bulk vaccine production and for fill and finish and other steps at the scale that we are talking about in the short span of time that you're describing. So, you know, before the end of the year. Uh, but the good thing, though, is that uh, both globally, the work that CEPI and Gavi and COVAX and others are doing, and also what uh, Health and Human Services are doing, is trying to build more capacity at risk, which is the first time we've done an endeavor like this. And um, in, in, as a part of that endeavor, I think the government is looking at what are the critical supplies in addition to manufacturing capacity, where do we stand on glass files, where do we stand on other supplies that are as critical, and efforts are being made to at least look at what could be new ways of resolving those supply bottlenecks. Now, uh, is that something that will get resolved in three months' time? Uh, most likely not. Is that something that can get resolved in eight to 12 months' time where we'll have sufficient vials, where we'll have sufficient other auxiliary inputs that need to go into vaccine manufacturing? Probably if our, uh, if our focus remains on respecting the principles of a global supply chain, which means you know, many parts that go into uh, manufacturing vaccines come from various parts in the world, and that's because there are core competencies, technical know-how, specialties that have emerged over time for specific regions. So if I think we respect that. We probably can be ready for uh, a, a large-scale number of doses uh, in 12 months' time. It's interesting to hear that that's being done ahead of time, you know, uh, that, that getting everything together actually might happen, maybe not before the end of the year, but not too long thereafter. Yeah, yeah this is Paul again. I, I think Nikki alluded to this. It, it is a large and tempting pool of vaccine that would be available. And we all hope, everyone hopes in the scientific community that we are going to wait for, for a safety. This is not warp speed one. This is warp speed two. Um, we did this before in 1955 associated with the polio vaccine. Jonas Salk tested that vaccine in 700 people in the, in the Pittsburgh area, children in the Pittsburgh area, found it to be safe, found it to be highly immunogenic. But we waited for a year to do a, a, a uh, placebo-controlled phase three trial that involved 420,000 children getting vaccine, 200,000 children getting placebo, as well as 1.2 million uninoculated and observed controls. That was a 1.8 million child study that was done in a year. To wait for for, 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 to make sure that it was safe and effective while five companies were making that vaccine at risk so that the vaccine could roll off the assembly lines right after we knew that it was safe and effective. If we were willing to wait then, we, we should be able to wait now because you know, there were, there were 30,000 children who were paralyzed by that virus every year or put in iron lungs every year. 1,500 died. That was a terrifying disease, as this is a terrifying disease. And I think we need to make sure we wait a few extra months if we need to, to make sure that we have a safety and efficacy trial on hand. And Nikki alluded to it. I hope she's right that the scientists would sort of stand up and allow for nothing less than that. But remember, this is this is an, an FDA approved, not licensed product. And so it'll be out through the emergency use authorization and all the scientists in the world can stand up. But if the if the head of the FDA says, I'm going to allow this to be used through EUA, um, he can. So uh, it, it does worry me a little bit that uh, this may not play out exactly the way we hope. EUA, that's emergency use authorization. And that allows for the okay. government to permit the use of unlicensed product in the context of a public health emergency or a product for a use for which it is not licensed. 
Yeah, well, let me make two other points about that, if I, if I can. You know, the first is, um, as Paul said, we made polio vaccine at risk. Frankly, during the H1N1 pandemic, we made um, flu vaccine at risk. Now, flu vaccine is a much less risky endeavor. We do it every year. All we needed to do is make the strain change. But in fact, the U.S. government paid companies to be manufacturing doses of vaccine while the trials were going on so that one could hit the ground running as soon as possible um, after those trials were done. That said, there were challenges even there with tried and true vaccines and tried and true companies in the manufacturing processes that meant that vaccine came out a little bit later than people really wanted. But again, this concept of doing these things in parallel isn't necessarily new. And the last thing I'll just point out is it's, it's not only the uh, US FDA that could be a, do a premature EUA, but a lot of different countries in the world could just say, we're gonna license this vaccine, we're gonna authorize this vaccine and try to jump a queue to get first in line to get doses even before somebody knew it was safe and effective. So there's a lot of different global politics uh, at play here. The FDA already gave an okay for a treatment for the use of hydroxychloroquine. And they gave the EUA before much data had come in. The data ended up not looking very good and they ended up having to cancel it. What does that say for a vaccine? What it says to me is we jumped the gun on that. Uh, I don't think that personally that was the FDA at its best. Um, the hydroxychloroquine had not been shown to be uh, uh, effective in the treatment of SARS-CoV-2. I mean, now we have some placebo-controlled trials in hand where we know that it wasn't effective. And we also know, as we knew, frankly, before that, that it had a safety problem. It caused cardiac toxicity, specifically arrhythmia. So I think we should have waited there. I mean, the, the notion, and President Trump said this, was, you know, how can it hurt? Well, if anything can hurt. I mean, because if you're sick, you know, one of three things can happen. You can do better, do worse, or stay the same. Um, if, if, the, if the product does not uh, make you better, then it can only do one of two things, either do nothing or, or hurt, which is what we found out here. So see, that's what worries me actually about uh, this, the, the FDA potentially jumping the gun here. I, 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 you know, because I think they jumped the gun there and, and I think there was political pressure to do that. And I do worry that this is not an administration that is above perturbing the science, witness, you know, climate change being taken off the EPA's website. So there, there, you know, it, and it is an election year. So I do think there is a pressure that's going to come. Well, and I think with that comes some other risks as well. I totally agree with you. But when there is a vaccine that we all think is safe and effective, we also want the public to be confident enough in it to use it. And between the premature EUA for hydroxychloroquine and then the lack of regulation around serologic tests for COVID, uh, confidence in the FDA and its decision-making has been really shaken. Both of those moves having been seen as really, really political. And so I think it's important for the scientific community as well as the FDA to tread very, very carefully because when this vaccine is ready and available and safe, we really want people to be vaccinated and to build enough immunity that we can hopefully end this pandemic. And so that's gotta be a partnership between the public, the regulators, the companies, all of the above. And we can't just have one partner here going rogue. Well, there are a lot of players in this. In fact, I wanna play another piece of tape. This is gonna be Monsef Slawi. He's the co-director of Operation Warp Speed. I am really confident 
that our team across the many governmental agencies that are involved in these efforts, the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, ASPER, and of course with the support of the Army and our partners in the private uh, sector uh, will be able and will do the utmost to deliver these objectives. Now, there were a lot of acronyms there that might not make sense to all our international listeners, but it's basically a whole swath of the U.S. government. But there was one group in there that I was surprised to hear, which was the support of the Army. Someone explained to me, what is the U.S. military going to be doing in all this? Well, I'll just start and I'll say, first of all, you know, the U.S. Army has a pretty substantial and very good research unit, and they have for a long time been involved in the development of vaccines. So that's something to recognize and something that shouldn't be a surprise. The U.S. Army has also supported the, the development and one of the manufacturing facilities that would be used in the event of a pandemic, and they intend to make vaccine there, and they're supporting some other candidates. But I think that the Trump administration's concept, too, has to do with the role of the military in the logistics and in delivering a vaccine. And there, I'm just less sure of what they have in mind. I would add one thing to that. Um, that was one confident little speech. It, it, it is worth <laughs> I mean, you think that here, here's a virus, that, a bad coronavirus that's just made its debut in the human population. We've only really had about seven months or so of experience with this virus, and already there have been several surprises. So, so here you're meeting a novel virus with novel vaccines. Why can't we assume that there's going to be much to be learned over the next year or two? And how about a little humility? And let me ask you, Prashant, have you seen the military get involved in, you know, making supplies available of this nature? So firstly, I think the military is really good at running logistics, especially when routine market systems are not working well, or we have a scarce product that needs to be distributed in a, in a very targeted sort of allocation methodology. So what I foresee the role here, and again, it depends upon if it's executed well, if it is given the right degrees of um, operating room and, and freedom to, to run it. But the role would be, one is to ensure that supplies that need to come into the manufacturing sites, if they are under the risk of disruption because international air cargo is not working or some other logistics components are not working, that's where the army can, can bring in its own logistics uh, capability and competency. And the second is, in the first wave of distribution, whenever we have a safe and efficacious vaccine, um, if we assume it'll have to be very targeted to select high-risk groups in the population, once again, uh, we might have to think about a distribution model that doesn't rely on private actors and wholesalers and distributors, which we routinely depend upon, but the army takes that role. So those could be the possible areas where I think the the Operation Warp Speed might be thinking of involving the Army. But again, I'm conjecturing here without having any specific details on it. Well, you know, overall, the U.S. so far has not shown itself to be very good at the complex delivery of supplies like masks and hand sanitizer and PPE. Why would vaccine distribution be any different? So I think that one of the reasons why we've struggled with, for example, test kits or, or other uh, medical supplies is that in, in the government trying to resolve bottlenecks, it's taken an approach where it, instead of taking a system-wide lens and saying, here is what we need to deliver something at capacity, 
they've just gone with whatever is the current bottleneck. And we know that in supply chains, you know, bottlenecks dynamically keep shifting. So if you if you solve and fix the problem for test swaps, then extraction kit um, reagents become the constraint. When you solve for that, then you realize that the number of machines becomes a constraint. Then you go back and swaps become a constraint, right? So that's the iterative. Let's try to fix one problem. Another one pops up. We fix the another one. The earlier one pops up again. So our hope is that for vaccine distribution, we aren't working with you know one step at a time, one bottleneck at a time, but rather we take a comprehensive system-wide view and say, if we do need 300 million or 350 million doses, then every element that goes into it has been carefully planned. Now, once again, similar to what I was describing earlier, that does require us to rely on manufacturing of certain components and parts that occur outside the US at the present time. Yes, over the future, we may build capacity to have more of that production occurring um, entirely in the United States, but currently we have to rely on some components to come from outside. And there again, I think the signals that manufacturers outside or our um, European or other allies get because of the nature of uh, political messages they hear doesn't necessarily help in reducing the friction in the supply chain. I think supply chains for medical supplies depend a lot on having trust between the different actors in the the supply system. And the moment you move into a trust deficit mode, um, then just the speed, the agility, uh, the efficiency with which you can move product through the system becomes weaker. This is all very interesting. And we're talking about it as if the U.S. is going to have some control over the first vaccine that comes in, that, that it will either be our vaccine or we're going to be first in line, and we may not be. What happens if another country develops the vaccine or, and doesn't share it? Is that a possibility? Well, sure, it's a possibility. And the U.S. has also not made any moves to indicate that if it's the first to develop a vaccine, it too will share it. So... Um, what I don't want to see is this devolve into some sort of a vaccine war, although I'm worried uh, that it could. Certainly on other parts of the global scene, SEPI, uh, Gavi, WHO have come together to try to look at how to basically co-invest and make purchase agreements with a number of vaccine manufacturers, figuring that countries that come together to invest in this or vaccines that are purchased on behalf of low and middle income countries can then be shared with an allocation framework equitably across the world, presumably first to frontline workers at the greatest risk and then going from there. That's a much more multilateral approach than what we seem to be seeing now with a number of the other uh, vaccine nationalism kinds of approaches. But the the lack of sharing or the risks of lack of sharing isn't necessarily unique to any one country. And at the same time, it's fair to say too that we're seeing a bit of a feeding frenzy with many countries trying to make bilateral deals with companies who they think might be a quote unquote winner and get to a vaccine first. You know, I would just add that, um, and Nikki alluded to this earlier also, the the 
the hardest part of vaccine manufacture to me is vaccine manufacture. So, so I mean, take take mRNA, which seems to be a leader. I mean, certainly Dr. Fauci's not only mentioned mRNA, but mentioned you know Moderna's company by name several times. Um, you know, mRNA is a very labile molecule. You know, when researchers work with mRNA in a laboratory, they store it at minus eighty degrees centigrade. So, so, so being able to stabilize that molecule is going to be the hard part, it, it, which is to say, it's going to require a complex lipid delivery system, and then as alluded to. To, uh, by Prashant, you know, you have to have the right buffering agent, the right stabilizing agent, the right vial, you have to do real-time stability studies, you have to make sure that it gets from the tarmac to the person's arm at very high or very low temperatures and is stable for what is a very unstable molecule. And I just think there's so much learning that's about to happen here about how you can not only provide vaccine for your own country, but get it out into other parts of the, the world, um, given that these are not easily stabilized products in some way. I guess we'll learn as we go here. And so the U.S. might not be first in line, and if we're not the first to develop it or not the first to uh, market it, it, it may not be available first here. What about the cost? Does anybody have a sense of what this is going to cost? So before getting the cost, Joan, I think I feel saying whether the U.S. has the first vaccine or not, once again, you know, it may well be that the U.S. out of the candidates that Operation Warped has invested in, you know, one of them is proven to be efficacious at a certain level of threshold. But that doesn't mean that's the only vaccine we need. It could well be that we need you know, different vaccines for subgroups or, or other criteria may come in. And once again, taking a bet without creating any kind of uh, reciprocal agreements with others who are developing vaccines is by design a risky bet. And it becomes even riskier when you add the kinds of manufacturing complexity that Paul described, right? So uh, if you have a vaccine which in the trials is proven to be efficacious and safe, but then to manufacture it at the scale we are talking about still has many other dimensions of uncertainty built into the manufacturing process, especially because we are talking about at least one or two of the candidates being things which are truly novel platforms, we've never manufactured them. Given the uncertainties in all of this, both from the the science and also the manufacturing science, taking a bet on a small portfolio and assuming that we'll get a winner or a couple of winners from that portfolio is a risky proposition. Any predictions on what the cost will look like? Let's say the cost per dose, not necessarily who's going to be paying it, but what the cost might be. So I think it's a complicated question because I think it depends on who pays and where this is. So for the U.S. candidates, the U.S. government has split the bill for almost all the development and all the manufacturing and all the purchase of doses. We have no idea what the purchase price of the doses is. But given that it's almost 100% taxpayer funded, I imagine that for the duration of the pandemic, the vaccine uh, may well be free after the pandemic is under control. If this becomes a commercial vaccine, all bets are off. But the other thing that's really important to highlight is the cost to society without a vaccine. And so it's estimated that for every month we don't have vaccine, it compromises global GDP by about $375 billion. So, you know, that makes the $11 $11 billion or whatever it is that was just the, the price tag uh, noted at the ACT Accelerator conference 
pale in comparison. That's about nine days worth of GDP. So I think you have to put this all in some context. Well, once we have a vaccine, it, you know, there's a pretty active movement in this country against vaccinations. Do any of you have a sense of whether people will accept the vaccine and the numbers needed to really make a difference? Right. So, so I think certainly there's an anti-vaccine movement in the United States. I mean, witness, you know, we eliminated measles by the year 2000, but enough people, a critical number of people now have chosen not to vaccinate their children with measles containing vaccine. The measles has come back over the last few years. But I, I don't I don't think that's analogous to this. I mean, this is a, this is a virus that's killing a thousand people a day in this country. This is a virus that's making it so that we, we're scared to walk outside, that you can't walk into a, a uh, you know, a common place without a mask on. I, I just... I think that the the sentiment against vaccines, at least the, the true anti-vaccine activists, meaning the, the basically which who's a conspiracy theorist, who's not going to be convinced by data, no matter how convincing those data are. I think if a vaccine comes out, and it has clearly been shown to be safe and effective, I think people will take it. But but I do think, and and I do think most people in this country trust vaccines. Uh, you know, we ask parents to give. Vaccines that prevent 14 different diseases in the first few years of life. That can mean as many as 27 inoculations during that time. It can mean as many as five shots at one time to prevent diseases most people don't see using biological fluids most people don't understand. Yet still 90% of parents roughly in this country do that. So I think we do have the confidence of the American public. And, and this is something Nikki alluded to earlier. I do think, though, if you come out with a vaccine and you don't know how effective it is, and then you find out it's 30% effective, I think you'll you'll shake that confidence. In, in, in answer to the second part, of your question, how high does the uh, immunization rate need to be? That depends on two factors. There's actually a formula for this. It depends on the R naught, which in this case is one and a half to two, meaning you'll infect two people a day during your typical day, assuming everybody you come in contact with uh, is is uh, not immune. And then the vaccine effectiveness. So if the R zero is or R naught is roughly two, which is what it is. Um, if you have a vaccine that is 100% effective, then you'd need to vaccinate roughly half the population to stop spread. If you have a vaccine which is 50% effective, you would have to vaccinate roughly 100% of the population. So we'll see. Does everybody else agree on the vaccine will be accepted? I mean, I look at, at these really terrifying pictures on TV of people not wearing masks and partying together, and, and they've been warned. Do you? Does everybody think that the vaccine will be accepted? So this is by no means my area of expertise, but I, I hope Paul is right, because if we look at some recent polls that have been done, and uh, admittedly they are on, on smaller samples, uh, but, but they do show when people were posed the question, will you take a COVID-19 vaccine uh, if it was available tomorrow? I think, you know, depending upon region, uh, other demographic characteristics, that those numbers are not anywhere close to 90%. I mean, they are much lower. The other thing which has been uh, somewhat challenging is if you have a, a project that's called Operation Warp Speed, I mean, that does make people a little less confident about, about what comes out of it, right? So similar to what Paul is describing, I mean, if we do have something that is uh, not very efficacious and we go too early, then the erosion of confidence in the vaccine that we may create will be very hard to build back. People tend to um, rate a vaccine as more dangerous if they, they see the disease as more dangerous. So in other words, they'll, they'll believe that an Ebola vaccine or an anthrax vaccine is more likely to be dangerous because the disease is dangerous, which is not logical, obviously. I mean, this, if we have a safe and effective vaccine here, I really do think that it's incumbent upon us 
to, to communicate that, to manage expectations about what this vaccine is likely to do and what it might not do. And, but I, I'm an optimist. But I, I do think that given how the impact of this virus in this country, that um, if we have a safe infection, we'll use it. Yeah. So, Paul, I think you point to one other thing that's really important. It's, it's you know, we can't say right now a vaccine is safe because we don't have a vaccine. But we can commit not to unleash an unsafe vaccine on the public. But this is the time to start really educating the public about what to expect. There is a lot of vaccine illiteracy in this country. And if we really want to have vaccine uptake when vaccine is available, we need to start now helping people understand all of what's involved and what to expect and hear what their fears and concerns are and think about how it is that we meet them and provide education. Um, and I think we have to do that in particular with populations that are typically left behind in vaccination or vaccination campaigns. And we know that this um, virus is not an equal opportunity killer and it disproportionately uh, impacts and kills minority populations. We also know that for vaccines like flu vaccine, uptake of flu vaccine in some populations, including some minority populations, is lower than others. And so there's work to do and to start now if we're serious about wanting to have vaccine uptake. And of course, it doesn't help to have crazy mixed messages coming from the White House. My last question is this, are we on the right path? I, I think this is an unprecedented moment in time. Here you have more than 70 companies, you have more than 120 pro possible products out there. You have this amazing amount of money that's being put in by Health and Human Services or you know, through BARDA or, uh, or the World Health Organization or Gates, et cetera, that, that you know, act as this tremendous pull mechanism. You have all this expertise, all this money, um, all this, uh, the, these ideas, every strategy that has ever been used to make a vaccine is being used to make this one, as well as a handful of novel strategies that have never been used. I think we are doing as well as we can do it. I just wish there was a little more humility in this because I can tell you, we are going to find out things in the next two years. We wish we knew now, but don't. And uh, Nikki, are we on the right path? We are on a path. I don't know that there's a right or a wrong path here. Obviously, there are things that we could do differently. I very much agree with Paul and his sentiments and comments. I wish that the world were acting a little more unified in this and instead of having a race with other countries. Be clear that we're all having a race against the virus. Right now, the virus has the upper hand. We need to retake the lead. Prashant. So I don't know about right, right path or, or, or not, but I think there are several things which are truly unique about the effort this time in ingenuity, uh, in how we create manufacturing capacity, how we put you know, capacity at risk at that scale. Uh, so those are things which are exciting. I think they are they are on the right path. One thing that I do worry about is that supply chains, especially when it is for a health product that is in, in scarce supply or has limited supply, um, they rely a lot on resource sharing, information sharing, coordinated decision making. And I'm not convinced on those fronts we are on the right path, right? I mean, the, the work that SEPI, Act Accelerator, WHO are doing, what Operation Warp Speed is doing, uh, what countries in the EU are doing, they are still isolated in making plans for sharing assets, assets meaning manufacturing capacity assets, 
in sharing information and in coordinating how successful vaccines will get distributed, et cetera. So I think those are areas which I feel we can do more uh, and we may not be on the, on the right path there. That sounds like a good point to end on. For more of BMJ's COVID-19 coverage, and not just about the U.S., check out bmj.com slash coronavirus. All of the BMJ's coronavirus coverage there is available for free. And in the podcast section, you can find new coronavirus data in the talk evidence episodes and listen to stories about how health providers are coping in our well-being podcast. You can subscribe to BMJ's podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, I'm Joanne Solberner and thanks for listening. <laughs>